Hi everyone, welcome to the Understand the Bible podcast with me, Phil Saker. Today's sermon is continuing in the book of Romans, looking at Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. A very hard-hitting sermon about the effects of sin and God's wrath, but a very necessary uh, part of the gospel to understand. Before we can get to the good news, we really need to go into the heart of, of the bad news and think about how bad things really are. Think about what really is wrong with the world today. So that's what we're going to be looking at in the sermon. And just to say once again that um, although there usually is more content on the Understand the Bible YouTube channel, we're just still on a break from that in the summer holidays, but we will be returning next week. The Bible study will start next week and then the Firm Foundations course will start the week after. Uh, we've just got three more sessions left to finish that off. So do have a look at the Understand the Bible YouTube channel for more. And uh, if you'd like to support Understand the Bible, there are different ways you can do that and please do check out below. And I've just uh, relaunched our Church with Understand the Bible. I'm currently working on an app which will make it easy, but uh, there's more information about that on the website. And that really is just an order of service with the sermon that you're about to hear, but put it into a format that you can uh, easily turn into a service yourself. So do check out the website for more information. Thanks so much everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoy and appreciate the sermon. And if you get a chance, please do leave this podcast a rating or a review uh, as it just really helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. God bless. And I'll see you again soon. So let me start today's sermon with a question. What is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? Now, I'm sure we would all give slightly different answers to that question, but I'm sure that all of us could see many problems in the world at the moment, from small things to big things. You know, you've got big things uh, like the, the war in Ukraine uh, that's going on, and then you've got the small things. You know, the way that people don't seem so much to be looking uh, out for one another in their communities. You know, you've got uh, people addicted to social media, people addicted to pornography, and, and all of those kind of things. There are many problems in the world today. Now, what is the cause of all of those problems? And that's where we're going to look at this passage in Romans chapter 1, continuing our series in Romans. Now, this passage is one of the most hard-hitting passages in the New Testament and you know, in the Bible, uh, I think. This is really hard-hitting, but this is what we need to hear because this is where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is starting to build his case, explaining about the gospel. And in order to get to the gospel, to the good news, you have to start with the bad news. So last week we had the introduction and you can go back and um, watch that or, or listen to that if you'd like to. But we're going to be focusing today on Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. So let me read that passage out first and then we'll, we'll think about it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. 
but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, like I said, that's a really hard-hitting passage. So let's go through it. And just before we get into it, I'd just like to, to make clear from the outset that this is one of those passages that's very easy to misunderstand, especially in today's world. And it's also the kind of passage where I think in order to really explain all of the, the ins and outs, you would need a book or two to be able to fully explain it. And obviously we've only got a short sermon. So uh, with that in mind, I just ask you to, you know, try and be charitable uh, with what I say here. I'll try and explain it in kind of big picture terms. Um, but I'll try and point to some resources which will be helpful to you in thinking through what Paul says here, if this is, especially if this is um, new to you. So Paul starts out by saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now let's just pause on that for a moment because this is really important. Paul says the wrath of God. Now wrath is not a word that we use very much these days. It sort of has old-fashioned connotations but really it just means anger. The anger of God is being revealed. Now if this is something um, that, that you're not so familiar with you might think well why is God angry? You know, why is God angry? Because perhaps you might think about human anger and think, well, why, why should God be like that? You know, we get angry with each other and that's not right. So, so why should God be angry? Now, this is the first most important thing to understand because the, the anger, the wrath of God, is one of, is one of the most important things to understand in understanding the good news, the gospel. And it's important to say that God's anger is unlike human anger, or mostly unlike human anger. 
I'm just going to quote to you a little bit from a book called Knowing God by uh, J.I. Packer, by uh, Jim Packer. And I think he's got, it explains a lot about knowing God, uh, about all the different aspects of God. But let me read what he says about the wrath of God to help explain. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among men, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. So God's wrath is God's anger at uh, sin and, uh, and evil in the world. And that is the first most fundamental thing to understand about the gospel, that, it, uh, that God is angry at sin and evil because otherwise God would not be a good God and this is something that we'll we'll come back to as we go through but this is the, the the idea of the the wrath and the anger of God is something that's been part of the church through the generations let me just quote to you the start of the book of common prayer confession from the communion service almighty God father of our Lord Jesus Christ maker of all things, judge of all men. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed, by thought, word and deed, against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. So there, in the confession of the, the Book of Common Prayer, which people in, uh, in this country would have used for generations, they say, our sin has most justly provoked your wrath and indignation against us. So it's an acknowledgement that sin, not just sin in the world, but our sin has provoked God's wrath, God's anger uh, against us. And that is the first place that we need to begin where, with the gospel, which is that, you know, God has this adverse reaction, this anger, this wrath against sin. And that includes us because we are sinners as well. But we will come on to the solution as we've been talking about salvation, of course, you know, that for Christians it is different, but we will, uh, we will come on to that. So hold your horses. But that's important to, to say from the outset that if God is not angry at sin, if, if there's no wrath, then there is no salvation. If there's no wrath, then there is no salvation. We must be absolutely crystal clear on that. So what is God angry about? We talked a little bit about sin, but what is God angry about? This is what Paul goes on to say. He says, God's wrath is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. So God's wrath is against people's godlessness and their wickedness. Godlessness is where they, they 
you know, act as if God does not exist. You know, perhaps they they don't believe that he exists at all, like, like an atheist. Or perhaps they just live their lives without reference to God. You know, just not praying to him, not reading the Bible, you know, just living as if God didn't exist, even if they might say they believed in him. That's godlessness. And wickedness is kind of the, the evil that we do against other people. So if you think about it, you know, the two greatest commandments are love for God and love for, for others. And that's encapsulated in those two words there. And what's interesting is that the one leads to the other. The godlessness leads to the wickedness. And that's something which we find all through the Bible, that being godless leads to wickedness. And we'll, we'll come back to that. And so why are people godless? And this is what Paul goes on. He says, people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. Um, so what Paul is, is saying, his argument, and we don't have the time to go through all of this in great detail, but Paul's argument is that godlessness, this, this unbelief, this lack of, of faith and trust in God, is a choice. It's a choice that people make. And that's why Paul says that people suppress the truth, which is that, you know, people know that God is there, that all of us are made in the image of God. You know, we're made to worship God. We're made to be in, in relationship with him and live our lives with him. And also we can look round at the universe and he talks about, you know, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what he's saying there is just look at the world. You know, just look up at the night sky. Think about the millions and billions of planets and stars and galaxies. You know, think about the, the infinite space up there. And then look down at the world. You look at the, the complexity of life, the complexity of even one biological cell, you know, the, the astonishing complexity of even the simplest living organisms. And think, surely, surely you can't look at all of that and think all of this arose by, by random chance. You know, he says everything in the universe declares the fact that God exists. And actually, this is just a sentiment which is found in other parts of the Bible. So one of my favourite psalms, Psalm 19, begins with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Everything in the world just proclaims the glory of God. That yes, it's, it's spoilt because of sin, but it's still, you know, got his fingerprints all over it. You know, you can't look at all of that and say there's no God. That's what, what Paul is saying, that unbelief is a, a deliberate choice. And the reason why people choose not to believe is what he, he goes on to there in verse, um, verse 22 and 23. He says, although they claim to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. So what Paul is saying here is that we choose not to believe. We, human beings, we choose 
not to believe in God because we prefer to believe in our gods of our own choosing, which the Bible elsewhere calls idols. That's the word that we prefer not to believe in God. So we choose to believe in idols instead. That is the the substitution that, that we make. Now, today's idols, of course, in, you know, in those days, then the many households would have had their own household gods. You know, they would have had actual little carved images or statues or that sort of thing. You still see that kind of thing today. There's someone just a few doors down from us who's got a Buddha statue in their garden. And I just saw someone in their window the other day had Buddha uh, kind of statues. And I think you could maybe call those idols. But, but most idols today are not kind of in, in the same, like a statue. I think idols today are perhaps things like money. You know, money is very much an idol. It's what we, we trust in money instead of trusting in God. Or perhaps uh, family can be an idol or career or, you know, even things like science and medicine can be idols. You know, all of that sort of thing, that anything that we put uh, in the place of God, you know, anything that we treat um, you know, that we kind of ascribe to, which only God should have, things which only God should have. Now, only he ultimately can provide a security. And idols are usually good things in themselves. Now, there's nothing evil intrinsically about money, but when we start investing it with power, which only God should have, then that's when it becomes an idol. I appreciate that all of this is a, a little bit... Um, Again, it's hard to explain in just a short sermon. So if you'd like to uh, to find out more about this, there's a good book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, which goes into this. And I found that a very helpful book in understanding about uh, idolatry. But there's a good quote I found as I was researching this by someone called David Foster Wallace. And um, I don't think he's a Christian, but he was uh, giving a speech and he said this. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he went on to say that if we worship things like money or you know, material things, that then it will break us in the end. If we worship God, that is what will give true life and, and joy and contentment. But the problem with humanity, as Paul says, is that we choose to worship other gods. So what is the effect when we substitute God with these idols, with, with false gods, what is the effect? And this is what Paul goes on to talk about, verses 24 to 27. And there's, a, there's actually a sequence which he mentions twice. So he says in verse 23 that we exchange the glory of God. We, we've already read that bit. And it says, verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And the same pattern is repeated again, verses 25 and 26. He says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And therefore, it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So this is what God's judgment is. The terrible judgment is God giving people over to their sinful desires. It's kind of like there's a quote by C.S. Lewis, which um, I really like, which is um, there are two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says, okay then, have it your way. But the thing is, having it our way rather than God's is the worst possible thing that can happen to us. It's a sign of, of God's judgment. And you'll notice, as we, you probably noticed as we read through, that the focus very much uh, in, the, in this part is on sexual uh, morality, sexual impurity. Uh, he talks about uh, shameful lusts as well, and in particular he mentions homosexuality. That is, even women giving up relations with men, and, and men giving up relations with women, and being inflamed with lust for one another. Now, why does Paul go here? To begin with, why does Paul say that you know sexual uh, morality, if you like, is kind of the the um, biggest uh, sign of uh, godlessness? Why does why is that the main thing? Is he like you know people seem to have this idea that Christians are just prudish about sex and are all sort of Mary Whitehouse um, kind of people who are always finger wagging? Uh, particularly about sexual ethics. Why does Paul go here? Well, again, this would need kind of a book, I think, to really explain. But let me try and and go through briefly. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, God makes uh, different things. You go through the days of creation. God makes different things to work together. Uh, So, for example, day and night you know, two different things that work together to complement one another. And it's it's kind of shows God uh, something about what God is like, you know, that, um, that God is uh, unity in diversity. You know, that there, there are three persons in God, but one God. Likewise, there are different parts of creation, but all come together in harmony to beautifully work together. So, you know, you've got day and night, you've got the 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 earth and the sky, you've got the land and the sea, and and so on and so forth, all things which come together to work together in harmony. And the pinnacle of creation is in day six, when God creates male and female. That's the the peak, the high point of of God's uh, creation. And that means that there is something deeply Uh, fundamental about the relationship between a man and a woman and particularly about a man and a woman coming together in sexual union which demonstrates something about God because it is that unity in diversity a man and a woman man and woman are different but complementary and and come together especially in uh, that uh, sexual union so that means that sex is not just a physical activity you know, it's not just like, I don't know, like having a meal or brushing your teeth or mowing the lawn or, or, or any one of those things that we do. But actually that there is a, a kind of a sacredness about sex, that it, it, it shows something about God, about who God is and who we are in relation to God. And that's why I think that when people reject God, that sex is often the thing which kind of is targeted first. That's because it, it, it's perhaps most, most of all, of all the things that we humans do, reflect something of our creator. And so it, it's so easily corrupted. You know, it's the, the number one target, if you like, that people want the, 
the pleasure of, of sexual union without God, without the love that comes from God, without, um, you know, without his ways of, of doing things. And the problem is, of course, that you look at, you look at loveless uh, sex and you think it's so dehumanising. Now, this is exactly how God's wrath works out, that when we get what we think we want, what we want, you know, when we, what we think we want when it comes to sex, actually, it, it, it's not what we want at all. It's totally dehumanising. And this is, uh, this is why I think Paul goes to, to this first of all, because it shows both the way that we reject God and the, the way that God's wrath is, is worked out. You know, that when we reject God, sex is often the, the first thing to, 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 be, to be changed, to be targeted. But it's also the thing which most clearly demonstrates uh, what happens when you, when you get rid of God. Now, let me pause just for a moment because I know that this is one of those passages where it's very easy to misunderstand and I don't want you to get the wrong idea. So I'd just like to briefly mention two things here where I think you could get the wrong idea and I don't want that to happen. Um, let me point you to a couple of other resources as well. So the first wrong idea is to say that uh, gay people are intrinsically evil and bad. Okay, now um, you could get that idea from, from reading this, but I would say that Paul is talking about a society. He's not talking about individuals who struggle with temptation towards the same sex, uh, but he's talking about a society which promotes and even encourages this. You know, think of pride marches, uh, for example, but he's not talking about specific individuals. If you'd like to know a bit more about uh, being Christian and gay and, and living within uh, God's teaching, um, if you experience same-sex attraction, if you are gay, then I, I can recommend a ministry called Living Out. And there's a website, livingout.org, and if you start there, then there are lots of videos and things of, of people, uh, interviews who are, of people who are, um, you know, trying to live within the Bible's teaching um, in, 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 this, in this way. So that's the first thing. It doesn't mean that anyone who's gay is intrinsically more evil than anyone else. Not, not, not at all. The second thing is, it doesn't mean that celibacy is a bad thing. Now, that celibacy has a long uh, and noble history within the church. And of course, you know, Jesus was not married. Paul, the Apostle Paul was not married. And there's a long kind of um, tradition of, you know, celibacy for the kingdom of God. It's a good thing. So don't think that just because, you know, sex shows something about God means that everyone therefore has to, uh, has to do it. <laughs> it has to be married. You know, that's not what it means. Um, but we can't go into that again in, in too much more detail. So I hope that didn't derail it too much. Let, let's move on to this final section. Paul kind of moves on from talking about sexual um, ethics and morality to talking about the rest of uh, society. And he goes on to say, uh, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. So he said, because we didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, you know, we, we put God out of our minds, so to speak. Therefore, God 
gave them over to depraved minds. So, you know, we uh, rejected God in our minds, so therefore our minds then became depraved, so that we do what ought not to be done. So that's, you know, like I started with at the beginning, thinking about how godlessness leads to wickedness. And that's exactly what we see here. And Paul actually says every kind of evil, you know, it's just anything evil that comes from that rejection of God. Sostoevsky uh, once said, if God is dead, then anything is permissible. And I think he was absolutely right that if God is dead, then there is no limit to the evil that we can do. Atheists sometimes like to say that, you know, um, like Christopher Hitchens, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens used to say, you know, religion poisons everything and how religion, you know, kind of made good people do bad things. But actually, I think that's historically illiterate. You know, if you look at the history of the 20th century, then it was actually secularist atheist regimes which had the highest death toll. You know, that they never introduced any, anything positive morally. It was actually, um, you know, they had the highest death tolls. They would kill and they would treat people badly. Um, that was the thing. And Paul finishes this passage, he says, uh, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul says those who, who live in this way, they, uh, not, they, they know it's wrong, they know it's wrong, but they not only uh, continue to do it, but they approve of those who practice them. It made me think again of, of pride, you know, how pride has become a celebration of uh, what Christians uh, believe is, is wrong. And how pride is, you know, it, it is saying, I'm proud of this. You know, it's not saying I'm struggling with this or, you know, or whatever. It's saying, no, I'm proud of this. And, you know, we are proud of our sinfulness. And I think that's exactly what Paul would be saying here. Uh, to us, that he would be pointing to that and saying, this is exactly an example of what I was talking about in this passage. So let's draw a few uh, threads together as we come to a close. And I do apologise, by the way, that this sermon is a little bit longer than, than normal. And that's just because this is such a key and big passage. And there are so, there's so much more that I could have said um, about this passage. But I hope that I pointed you to some resources which you might find helpful in, uh, in thinking this through in a bit more uh, detail. Now, it's, it seems obvious to me, reading through uh, this passage, that we are living in a society where you can see this very much in evidence. I, I suppose to some extent you could see this in evidence in, in every society through history. But, you know, the way that our society has changed from, you know, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century, uh, Western society became very secular. And I think with, with that has come uh, immorality as well. And we've already talked about quite a, um, a number of those. But it's interesting to me how um, the death of Christian Britain seemed to happen in the, uh, the 1960s. And that was also simultaneously the decade of the sexual revolution. I don't think I'd ever really seen that before, how those two things kind of went together. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how 
um, the sexual revolution can have kind of happened at the same time as Christianity declined in uh, in Britain. And um, I think, you know, if you need any more evidence for this, that, you know, just look at the history of, of Western civilization in the last hundred years. Um, but, you know, today it seems like we've gone so completely bonkers, so crazy when it comes to, to sex and, and to relationships. You know, we've got dating apps where you just have to swipe who you find attractive and, and who you don't. Not about getting to know someone, getting to love someone. It's just about a superficial lust, really. You know that only is it's about that attraction, um, superficially, not about knowing someone. You've got uh, OnlyFans. You know you can go on to OnlyFans and you can pay to see um, a girl doing, you know, doing things for you. You know, you can pay money and and so on. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the pornography uh, that's available on the internet and so on and so forth. It's just the, the level of um, impurity in our society is just so deep, it's, it's almost impossible to comprehend. I think there are some people though who are uh, beginning to, to wake up to this and recognise the harm that has come, the way that God's wrath has been revealed as we've abandoned his ways. And there are people like Louise Perry who wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she's not coming from a Christian perspective, but she's written that book as a feminist and saying how you know, the decline of marriage and today's kind of sexually permissive culture has actually been deeply harmful for women. And I can recommend uh, listening to her interviews, reading the book, if you, you want to find out about how deeply wrong and harmful the sexual revolution has been. Um, and it's, you know, like we said, it's not just about sex, is it, the, the sexual ethics. It's all over the place that it seems like people are, are not living in, in the right ways. That, you know, that, um, just to give you, again, one example, you know, people are, are kind of selfish and greedy. The National Lottery, I, I found, had made eight billion pounds in one year. That's um, April 21 to March 22. Eight billion they took in, in that year. That's, be, uh, that's because the, the number of people buying lottery tickets, you know, think about how much money that is. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? And have you ever heard anyone who bought a lottery ticket who said, yeah, you know what? I'm giving all the money to charity. Every penny of it is all gonna go to charity. I don't want it. You know, it's people want the money for themselves. They want their lives changed. They want things for themselves. They're not interested in community and society. That's where we are as a, as a country at the moment and as a society, is people living for themselves rather than living for others. There's a quote by um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, it's the second time I've quoted a Russian today. But, you know, they knew something about this. They knew what it meant to live in a godless society and the effect that it had. This is what Solzhenitsyn had to say about, um, about this. More than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, 
and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And that is the cause ultimately of the problems in our society, that we've turned away from God to idols. So what does that mean for us? Because Christians are, often have a reputation to be very finger wagging and pointing the finger at all of the, sort of like Mary Whitehouse, I suppose. Look, oh, look at all this moral filth on TV. Look at all of this and just wag the finger at all of that. What we need to do as Christians is to be first and foremost devoted to God ourselves. And second of all, we must seek for others to put God first. You know, because rather than seeking to, to solve all of the moral problems in society by pointing the finger, we must promote instead, promote God. And that's not to say, you know, don't point out where there are moral problems, but rather we must first and foremost be people who point the way to God and point the way to Jesus, because only he is the solution to these problems. And that's what we're going to come on to as we go through the book of Romans. So I know that this has been a, a hard hitting passage for us to hear. There's so much to think about in our society. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we process this in the coming week and ask for his wisdom in how we relate to a world which has gone so wrong. So Heavenly Father, we realise this is such a, a hard hitting passage and we know that there is so much uh, to digest here. There's so much that's wrong in the world. And we can see, Lord, even in our own hearts, how our own hearts have, have turned away from you uh, at times. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us wisdom as to how we live, that we may um, more and more put you first and uh, that we might shine as lights in this generation. And we pray that you would help us always to point the way to you, point the way to Jesus as the solution to these problems. Help us to know how to engage with a world which has gone so wrong uh, that uh, we might help people to turn to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.